I do like these days. I love these days, but I wish, I wish we didn't have hang-ups because I would love to have a pajama day. Wouldn't you love to have a pajama day? Pajama church day, I, you know, if we couldn't do it in here because people feel uncomfortable about that, we could do it in the fellowship hall or something, but just have a pajama church. I mean, make it like the New Testament church where you guys were meeting in homes. You know, somehow we'd set a fire in there. I'm not saying that we would, but, but it would, I would love to do that. You know that it was homey back in the New Testament time. And then I wouldn't have to wear this, this cloth necklace I have on. Sing with me. Oh, come let us adore him. Oh, come let us adore him. Oh, come let us adore him. Him Christ the Lord. Blessed are you, O Lord, King of the universe. We praise your holy name because the way that you have led us in the past assures us the way that you will lead us in the future. Father, anoint this people. May the Reformation not have ended hundreds of years ago, but may it continue through our lives until your soon return. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. It has been 20 years since I gave my life to Jesus Christ. Amen. I was previous to that. I was... I had gone three years at a public university. I remember I woke up, hung over in my fraternity house, and saw an Insight magazine in my fraternity house. And I started looking at the colleges. I had, I had a full ride there, by the way. I said, Dad, I want to go to an Adventist school. My dad said, what are you thinking? You have free schooling here. So eventually I end up at Southern, not to become a Christian, but just to get away from those influences. I end up at Southern and people start inviting me to Bible study and stuff. "Ah, I don't think I want that. I don't think I want that. Eventually I wanted friendship and there were a couple of guys that were praying for me. And so I would go to these Bible studies, and I would go, and we would do Bible studies. You know, if you've ever been to Southern, you know, right there in the Smokies area, and in Chattanooga, I love that area. And we would go up to like Signal Mountain, and people would bring their guitars. And I loved it. You know, they could bring music with them, and I wanted to learn how to play the guitar. As I was giving my life to Jesus, I wanted to learn how to play guitar. So after I had given my life to Jesus, I went home and that summer and I, and I talked to a friend uh, who was a friend from high school and she was at the local university that I used to be at. And I visited her at her house and I noticed that there was this, this old guitar-shaped box there. And you know the ones that are the paper ones that are all ripped up? I mean, it's, it's basically made out of paper. And I said, whose is that? She said, oh, it's mine. My parents found it at a garage sale 
years ago, probably when I was like 10, and I've never played it. And so we opened it up, and the strings are all like rusty, and I was like, can I buy it from you? She said, you can have it. It's just been here collecting dust. And I was like, ah. And before I could ever play a chord, I was 21 years old. This guitar, this is the guitar. It's a Palmer. I had never heard of a Palmer. You know, you hear of uh, Martin and Taylor. She says, take it and use it for whatever you want. Now, you guys know, especially you ladies, that when you prize something like this, even though it's probably not of much monetary value, you don't want people touching it. And then, you know, but other people don't care about it the same. They'll lean it up against something when they're done. You know, they'll grab it. Oh, oh, we have to use that area. And they'll, they'll just put it against the wall. And it's, you know, like when they set it there, I mean, like, you know, and it's like leaning like this and you know it's going to fall over and you run over this was my prized possession. Actually, this was the most valuable thing in my life at that time, outside of family. This, to me, I was so protective over it that I felt that if there was ever a fire, that is the most important thing I need to get out outside of somebody's life. That was invaluable to me. And something that also reminded me, it was invaluable because it was my first guitar, it was my friendship with this person. There was so much tied into that. Now, if you go back to the Reformation days, there was something that was of value to some of these people that they were willing to die for. Last week I mentioned it, that it would take 10 months before Gutenberg, it would take 10 months to produce one of these. And that's with all day work. And what was it? The scriptures, the Bible. The things that we have like this took 10 months, somebody from dusk till, I mean from dawn till dusk, writing like this, copying, 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 10 months months. But now we're at this point of history. And I want to share with you an article that I read recently. It's a 2013 article from the Huffington Post. You know the Huffington Post? A very conservative, uh, you know, it's very liberal, but they write about, sometimes about religion and stuff like that. Well, the, the article's uh, title was, Americans Love the Bible but don't read it much, Paul says. And they were quoting a survey from the American Bible Society. And they said this, and they gave several facts. They, they did this extensive survey. And fact number one is that out of the respondents, 88% of these respondents owned a Bible. 88% owned at least one Bible. The second one, 80% believe that the scripture is somewhat sacred, that it's, that it's holy, that it's inspired. Third fact, 
according to the respondents, was that 61% of these people wish that they would read more. We wish we would read more. Yeah, we know we should. The fourth one was the average household had 4.4 Bibles per household. Now, some of that I didn't include in there was that almost 80% of them said, we believe that there is moral decline within our country. And 30% of them said there is a direct correlation between the moral decline and people not reading their scriptures. But if you read this and what George Barna says about people reading their scriptures, Christian people reading their scriptures, that right now, within 2016, I think was the last time he published something about reading their Bibles, George Barna said that about, almost about 50% of people over 60 are reading their scriptures, evangelical Christians because that's who he mostly surveys. Less than one quarter of millennials are reading their scriptures. And, and, the, and it was once a week, at least once a week. What was once the most valued possession, outside of my kids, the thing I will save is this. I got them everywhere. There's some that we haven't touched since we got married, or you know, there. Are, you know which one's your favorite Bible. Are there Bibles in your house that you haven't touched in five years? Yes. But it wasn't that way this time. And I really do believe a lot of it started. Obviously, this was a Holy Spirit movement. But there is a man, and it wasn't a really great translation, but there was a man called John Wycliffe or Wycliffe from England who started this all out. Now, John Wycliffe, if you know, he was born in 1330. What year was that? 1330 in England in a small town called Lutterworth. Now, there was a famous writing, a famous literature that was written right before this by a guy named Dante. Does anybody know what that complete writing was called? Okay, Dante's Inferno is part of it. The Divine Comedy. But we know Dante's Inferno. And I think we know Dante's Inferno is because he elaborates on the enemy like Satan, and what is happening in hell in such detail that that's what shines. Hell is the part that shines in his, in his writing. But that shows how much the Roman Catholic Church at that time had influence over the people. If you do not follow what we believe, you are going to burn and burn, and burn, and burn, and there will be gnashing of teeth, and it's going to be horrible. And Dante was following this and writing about this. So here this person is born, John Wycliffe, and he ends up 
getting his doctor in divinity and becomes a priest from Oxford. And he actually becomes a professor at Oxford. And he starts realizing what is happening in the church is not what I believe. By the way, we're going to talk about him and Jan, uh, John Hus today, John Hus. Do you notice, and I just, this is just a side note, between him, Hus, Wycliffe, and Martin Luther, they were all professors at one point in time. How different a day now. The reformers of old came to the light because they were studying scriptures. They were scholars of the scriptures. How different is it now with our professors in the world that are actually leading us away from that and saying, well, there are better philosophies out there. But the original scholars here knew that they had to be scholars of the scriptures because it was relevant. But now scripture in many places is it? is irrelevant. It's barely a historic book. But these professors, John Wycliffe became a professor and he said, there is something wrong with what's going on. And, and like I had mentioned last, last week, remember there was a thing called the Great Schism. Remember how many popes were in, in, at the end where it's the, the Council of Constance in the next century over, how many popes were reigning at the same time? Three. And so people were like, well, how can there be three that are fighting? They're bickering and they're, they're trying to take control from the others, but this is from the Lord. And the pope is supposed to be the one, yeah, the one in place, the vicar, the one in place of God, but there's three and they all disagree. Hmm. And then, like I said last week, there was a thing called simony, which is based off the, the story about Simon, not Simon Peter, but Simon who tried to buy the power of the Holy Spirit to heal. Hey, can I, can I pay you to, to give me that spirit? Well, they were buying religious offices, and, the, and they were making money hand over fist. The, the, like I said, in England specifically, the, the Roman Catholic Church owned one-third of all the property. One-third of all the property was owned by the church. While people were getting poorer and poorer, the church was getting richer and richer, and richer. And finally, this guy could not hold it in anymore. And he said, I believe that we, because he was a priest also, should be humble and pious and lowly. We are servants of the people. But instead, we are gluttons with money. And we're feeding ourselves and he said, we, the scriptures do not teach about an institutional church like this. We believe in an invisible church, which crosses denominational lines, which is a little bit scary. 
At that time, they didn't have the denominations that we have. But he said, we don't believe that an institution should tell us what to believe. We believe that the scriptures should tell us what to believe. And I was just telling somebody this morning, even me, I believe in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. I want you to know this. I believe in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. But I believe that I, my life is dictated by scripture not the Seventh-day Adventist Church. If we are ever dictated by a church, we better watch out that we are going back to this day and age. Because Scripture is God's Word. Scripture is not 28 fundamentals. Scripture is this. And if there was ever a contradiction, guess whose side I go on? This. All right, amen. Now, here's the sad thing. Nowadays, people are voluntarily choosing their church's doctrines over this. In this day, they didn't have a choice because most people did not read Latin. Now, as you know, the scriptures at that time were what they would call original, but it wasn't Hebrew, and it wasn't Greek. It was Latin, and the Latin Bible was called the Vulgate. And Wycliffe said, this is not for just the priests. This is for everybody. Salvation's for everybody. And I'm not the only one who will interpret this. So he, dis or that will interpret it for you. I want to create, a, or I, not create, I want to translate this so that it's in your vernacular. And so he started. But the priest didn't like this. You know, just like with, for example, you know, in Islam, in Islam, there are people that pray. The majority of Muslims pray in Arabic but have no clue how to speak Arabic. You know, you, you ask these people. I, there's, a, there's a friend of mine that I met at the gym, and he's Muslim, pretty devout Muslim, and he prays every day in, in Arabic. I said, do you speak Arabic? No. Do you understand Arabic? No. That's how it was here. The priests themselves at times had memorized Latin prayers that they didn't even know. They didn't know what it said. They just felt it was holy. That was what was happening with the Latin Bible. So Wycliffe, with what he had, he had this Latin Vulgate, and he started translating. And it took him a couple of years but by 18, I mean, not 18, 1382, he had translated the New Testament into English. And actually, that was 1380. In 1382, he had translated the Old Testament. But by 1382, he had translated the whole scripture into English. It, it was claimed to be the first European translation in about a thousand years. It wasn't a very good translation, especially because it came from the Vulgate. By the way, just a side note, do you know that one of our translations here is still based off 
a lot in the Vulgate. Does anybody know which translation that is? Yeah, the King James. Sort of this original one was based off of a lot that was part of the Vulgate. Um, the more newer translations, like a New American Standard and stuff like that, are based off of Hebrew and Greek and some Aramaic. So he started getting momentum because he was preaching. He had a pulpit, and he was teaching. Hey, guess what? I don't believe that the priests should dictate if I have salvation or not. I don't believe that you should have to confess to me as a priest. I don't believe in transubstantiation, that, when, that I am supposed to put this piece of bread in your mouth and then it somehow becomes the flesh. And that as you drink from this cup, it actually becomes blood when it touches your lips. I don't believe this. Well, there was momentum that was happening. And people said, I want more of this. So he kept writing and writing and writing. And he started teaching these guys that were eventually called Lollards. These are his disciples, if you see that. Lollards, which technically means mumbler. Mumble. It was a derogatory term. By the way, Christian was a derogatory term also, originally. They, were not, they did not name themselves Christians. Other people did. Said, oh, those Christ followers. Well, this one, oh, those lollards, those mumblers. They're, they're ignorant. We have our terms now. But that's what it meant. You ignorant fool. Well, he taught them how to copy as fast as they can. And so they started copying and copying and copying and copying and domino effects to the point that even to this day, there's still about 170 copies of this around. Now remember, how long does it take for one copy? Ten months all day. You know what they were doing with most of these? Fire. To me, it's amazing that 170 copies survived. I would probably just say, all right, 10 months, I'm done, you know? 170 still around. He was called the morning star of the Reformation because he was the one that started this. And the Holy Spirit was using him and his writings to spread something in England by the way, I do believe that, now this is my personal opinion, I do believe that this is what started. His movement started, you know, the Church of England is different. They rebelled against the Roman Catholic Church and became the Church of England, and I do believe it is partially because of Wycliffe's movement. Now, if you know this, he died. Remember, what year was the, the Bible finally written, completed, his? 1382. Well... The church did not like what he was preaching, so he was slated to die. And they were about to take him to die, at least this is what tradition teaches, the historical tradition. In 1384, he was preaching, knowing that he was about to die, going to be executed, martyred. And he fell and died right there. As he was preaching, doing what he loved, he fell, died, and they didn't get to kill him. So the Roman Catholic Church was so mad about that that after the Council of Constance 30 years later, 
they dug up his bones and burned them just so that he could never be resurrected. Because in that day, if you were ever burned, if your bones were ever burned, you could never be part of the resurrection. So they did that just to spite him. They were like, we need to burn his bones. So they dug up his bones and burned him. He had been dead for 30 years. But as he was about to write all this stuff, there was another man who was born in 1372 in now currently the Czech Republic, which used to be Czechoslovakia, which used to be Bohemia. John Hus, he was being raised. You will be a priest. His mom wanted him to be a priest. You will, you will work for the church. We will be comfortable in, in church work. And you will work here, especially in Prague. So he studied at Prague, and eventually he also taught at the University of Prague. And at that time... England and Bohemia had a good relationship. And let me get my history straight. Because the Holy Father, Charles IV, had set up the University of Prague. His daughter, Anne, had married King Richard of England. And what they started doing was like a student exchange program. We'll send some of our students there. You send some of your students here. And some of the ones that went to England said, who is this Wycliffe guy? And they started listening to Wycliffe, and they, and they started reading his writings, and they started spreading the writings. They said, well, we can't keep this to ourselves. So they took it back to Prague. And one of those people that got his writings was John Huss. He said, this is amazing. Because he saw clerical corruption. So he started writing stuff and he started teaching about this. We need the Bible. He started writing and writing and writing and writing. Well, the Catholic Church said, okay, we learned from Wycliffe. We're not going to let this go this far with this guy. So what they did is they actually put the whole city of Prague under an interdict. Now, if nobody knows what that means, an interdict means that no religious sacrament could be performed in the whole city. Now, to you and I, if you skip, if you skip communion, for example, which you shouldn't, but if you did, we have no problem with that. Sometimes we go months, you know, years. There are people that, you know, probably haven't done communion for years. But these sacraments were considered so holy and they were tied to your salvation. So if you did not do them, you would burn forever and ever and ever and ever. So the Roman Catholic Church said, we are going to put so much pressure to get rid of this guy that we are going to put an interdict over the whole city. Nobody in the city will go to heaven as long as they're going to allow him to preach. <clears throat> so after a while, he realized that there was so much pressure that he actually left the city. 
and he moved to Germany. Hence, we have this German movement that becomes later. But he moves to Germany, and he becomes a hero because they're prime also. They're ready for the Reformation. And finally, there comes this, near the end of his life, remember, there's this great schism, right? And the church is like, we're, we're losing our hold. Remember what was happening in Jesus' time? In Jesus' time, the, people, the Pharisees and the Sadducees knew they were losing hold of, of the people. They knew it. So they, you remember, they even said, it is better that one die than the whole nation. We don't need to lose this whole nation. And what they would blame it on is they're like, he's gaining so much momentum, and it's going to be against Caesar. And so, so we need to kill him before he brings too much heat upon us. They were saying the same thing. We can't lose this holy church over these people. So they, they called this Council of Constance, which if you notice, which somebody did notice, I have a date wrong in there. It was actually in 1415, not 1414. But there was a king of Romans, and his name was King Sigismund. All right? King Sigismund. Can you say that, Sigismund? Yeah, I hope I'm pronouncing it right. And he told John Huss, hey, we're about to dissolve this great schism he didn't call it that at the time. We are going to put one pope in, in charge again. But we notice what you've been teaching, and we want you to have an opportunity to, to defend. Because people started rumors about him. And he said, we want you to defend what you believe. I promise you, I guarantee that if you come, you will be safe. I guarantee your safety. And as the tradition teaches, as the history teaches, is that as he traveled to this council, the Germans would come out and cheer for him because he was a hero now for the cause of Christ. And so they come out, and he comes to this council to defend himself, and immediately he's thrown into prison. This king said, psych, you will not be able to defend yourself. He was not allowed to defend himself. Actually, they started at his trial to say that he was claiming these absurd things. Even one claim was that he claimed he was the fourth person of the Trinity, which doesn't make sense. He was the fourth person of the Trinity. And so they said, you will die for what you believe, unless you recant. Now, I am going to read. This has been translated from Latin into English. I am going to actually read this last account of his execution. So it said, Then, having been divested of his clothing, he was tied to a stake with ropes, his hands tied behind his back, and when he was turned facing east, some of the bystanders said, do not let him to face the east because he's a heretic, but turn him to, to the west so it was done. When he was bound by the neck with a sooty chain, he looked at it and smiling, he said to his executioners, 
the Lord Jesus, my Redeemer and Savior, was bound by a harder and heavier chain. And I, a miserable wretch, am not ashamed to bear being bound for his name by this one. The stake that was a thick post half, and a, foot, half a foot long, they sharpened one end of it and fixed it into the ground of the meadow. They placed two bundles of wood under the master's feet. When tied to that stake, he still had his shoes on and one shackle on his feet. Instead, indeed, the said bundles of wood interspersed with straw were piled around his body so that they would be reached up to his chin. Reached all the way up to his chin. For the wood amounted to two wagons or carloads. Before it was kindled, the imperial marshal approached him along with the late Clem, as it was said, exhorting him to save his life, save your life by abjuring and recanting his former preaching and teaching. But he, look, he looking up to the heaven, replied in a loud voice, God is my witness, he exclaimed, that those things that are falsely ascribed to me and of which false witnesses accuse me, I have never taught or preached. But that the principal intention of my preaching and all my other acts or writings was solely that I may turn men from sin. And in that truth of the gospel that I wrote, I taught and preached is accordance with the saying and exposition of the holy doctors, I am willing, gladly, to die today. And hearing that, the said marshal with the son of Clem immediately clapped their hands and retreated. When the executioners at once lit the fire, Huss immediately began to sing in a loud voice, At first, Christ, thou Son of God, have mercy on us. Secondly, Christ, thou Son of God, have mercy on us. In third place, thou art born of Mary the Virgin. And when he began to sing the third time, the wind blew the flame into his face, and thus praying within himself and moving his lips on his head, he expired to the Lord. While he was silent, he seemed to move before he actually died for about a time one can quickly recite our Father two or at most three times. If you read the rest of this account by one of his disciples, they were still so mad at this guy that they took his skull out of the ashes and beat it with clubs and threw it again to be burned. He was ready to die for the cause of Scripture. The Scripture reading we read earlier is the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then his joy went and sold, in his joy, went and sold all that he had and bought that field Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. 
in those days, the treasure they held was scripture. That was what was important. And reformation happened. I have heard the rumblings of people within this congregation and out. We pray for revival, which is really a cry for reformation. We pray for revival. Well, for revival to happen here, we must treasure the scriptures in the same way they were then. It must become so ingrained in your life that you feel you would die without it. It is not your luxury. It is your source of life. That is my prayer here. So now if you ask, what is my treasured possession, my, my greatest possession? It is not that guitar anymore outside of my, my wife and kids. It is my Bible. My Bible my study Bible specifically is the one that I value because I have poured so much time in there that I have even carried it at times and like it's raining or something and gets a drop of water in it and I'm so mad because it smudges what I wrote in there. That is my treasured possession. Everything else can be replaced. My scripture is what I treasure the most. So as I was reminded, the last question I did not give you, but I wanted to read this to you because as Huss was being burned, he said this, you are going to burn a goose, which his name meant goose. Hus means goose. You will burn a goose today, but in a century, you will have a swan, which if you know, the swan was the representation of the Reformation. You will have a swan which you can neither roast nor boil. And almost a hundred years later was the Reformation of the 95 Theses, which we will talk about next week. Yevareka Adonai v'yishmareka, Yair Adonai panava alecha v'chuneka. Yisa Adonai panava alecha the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and may he give you peace. Father, we ask that you empower us, that you start a revival, a reformation within our walls by your word. Father, we know we do not have to teach doctrine. We do not have to do anything but lift up. You said as that snake was lifted up, Lord, I will be lifted up. And by that, all men will be drawn to me. May your word be lifted up and may that in turn lift you up. And may reformation and revival happen. We ask this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Happy Sabbath, everybody. Enjoy this weather.